0: It was really the perfect storm amidst a horrible storm. And yeah, we launched a Kickstarter in June and with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, it raised over $360,000 in pre-orders.
1: Hey, my name is Felix Tid. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify. The easiest way to sell online, in person, and in between. Each week we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the most important questions to ask to get unbiased feedback and uncover use cases for your product, the critical steps to launching a successful crowdfunding campaign, and where to go after a successful crowdfunding campaign to expand your customer base. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the Storefront Signage Maker. It's an easy way for any brick-and-mortar shop owners to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use. No design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com signage. Today, I'm joined by Martika Wakeman from SantaCon. SantaCon is a refillable hand sanitizer dispenser made from recycled ocean-bound plastic, and was started in May 2020 and based out of San Francisco, California. Welcome, Martika.
0: Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Felix.
1: Yeah, so this is we have businesses that have come on the podcast that have talked about how they've pivoted and how they've uh, ad- adapted during the pandemic. But this is truly a business burst out of the the pandemic. So tell us more about the invention of the the the, the product and and the business.
0: Yes, a hundred percent. So it's an interesting story. My co-founder Miles, he was uh, worried about his grandmother who was in a nursing home in Oregon, and as we know. Um, Oregon nursing homes were actually kind of the first place where COVID really hit hard. And that nursing home was going to run out of sanitizer. So he contacted a local distillery, got them sanitizer within a day. And it gave him the idea of really trying to connect more people the most in need with the, these distilleries. And there was this big issue uh, really, a communication breakdown of distilleries getting 10,000 emails a day. We need sanitizer. We need sanitizer. And hospitals, nursing homes, uh, homeless shelters, nonprofits of all kinds, they needed sanitizer the most uh, to help the neediest. And they couldn't get through. And distilleries didn't know how to uh, certify them, make sure that they were the real deal. So Miles put together with a team of volunteers a platform, a free platform to verify these these nonprofits and those in most need and then connect distilleries to them. So it was really amazing. And once the supply caught up with demand, um, Miles thought of the idea of creating a sanitizer that was actually sustainable. It is such an unsexy wasteful industry. Um, there's really no reason why it should be virgin single use plastic for two ounces of sanitizer. Um, and not only that it's a bit doomsday, you know, I think we're all tired of doomsday. And, um, so to make something that didn't remind you of the fear, uh, even subtly or of the pandemic even, and was a cute, colorful, convenient way to, um, keep safe and healthy and do so in a way that helps the planet. And, um, he's invented final straw, which is the world's first reusable, uh, collapsible straw. And that did amazingly on Kickstarter. Um, it raised almost 2 million. And so he knew how to, uh, sort of test the the desire for such a product and had worked with ocean plastic before he'd actually been to Haiti to a facility that employs people to collect ocean-bound plastic and recycle it, um, upcycle it is really the right term and and reuse it for um, our everyday needs. So it was really the perfect storm um, amidst a horrible storm. And um, yeah, we launched a Kickstarter in June um, and that raised, with with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, it raised over $360,000 in pre-orders.
1: That's amazing. And you had mentioned about how he was able to uh, test the desire of the product and also probably s- similar learnings from the launch of uh, Final Straw, which we've also had on the, the podcast. Um, is this through crowdfunding or were there was there a stage or a, a process prior to um, kicking off the crowdfunding campaigns where he was able to determine that, okay, this is actually worth investing any more of my time or energy into?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, That's where I came in. Um, I have a lot of experience with um, testing with users, understanding stakeholders, understanding um, the branding and their lifestyle um, price points. And so we did a lot of testing with people um, in our community and then incentivizing people um, in, in our network to go outside of our sort of circle and what else was out there? What people's opinions were. Um, what's interesting is I am thirty-four. Um, Miles and his, his um, other business partner at the time were thir- were twenty-five. Uh, and then of course we had parents, relatives, friends. So we had an interesting um, look at what is the age group here, what's the price point, uh, and understanding a little bit more about what people wanted. Um, but the nice part about Kickstarter is. If you have the right skills, which we had a really great collective skill set, you can put a campaign together with very little risk. And then you can, um, you know, there's a bit of a mathematical equation, um, making sure that you're gaining interest and collecting emails so that when launch happens, you really get to go out of the gate for the bang, Um, making sure that you're um, managing the community, growing the community, answering questions. There's a, a, you know, a nice way that you can really just low risk test the market in real time and see if people want this product. And, and it, it, it proved that they did, uh, which yeah. is really exciting for us, of course.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like different, uh, at least two different, um, stages to this, each one building more confidence in the, uh, the kind of product market fit for, for what you guys are bringing to the market. Um, and so I want to first talk about the the, the early testing. You mentioned that you were able to uh, test or maybe survey your community, your network. Is this something just like a personal network? Or how do you even, if someone else has an idea, whether it be in the sustainability space or anywhere else, how do they know, how would they even know what sh- how to access a group of people? Uh, you know, people that you would value their feedback or people that are actually in your potential market.
0: Yeah. It, it really comes down to putting yourself out there. So we did initial testing with, um, our friends and family. Of course, you're going to get a lot of false positives because everyone's sort of like, yeah, of course we'll buy this. We'd love this great idea, honey. You know, and so you want to really get away from your own, your own community and your network And that really becomes being part of other networks. I'm part of um, women in CSR, corporate social responsibility. Um, I'm part of a few other networks, and so I I have you know those those networks have no interest in lying or um, you know being biased by any means. So I think that was um, really really helpful. One of our business partners works at. Spotify, and he was able to just ask his his network. And we're talking just simply creating surveys that are asking the right questions. You're not leading the audience. Asking the right questions and then putting it on Slack channels, you can incentivize. Sometimes that makes a huge difference if you're not getting a big response. But I think because we're, we're caring about the environment, we were helping create jobs with distilleries by buying our sanitizer from them. Uh, We had an emotional tie here. People were really happy to help us out. I also think it was, you know, it's the middle of the pandemic or the height of it, I guess, the beginning where people are just sort of um, really extending themselves to help people. And we're really grateful for people's input. It was really helpful and and we could have made a lot of really, you know, there were a lot of mistakes to be made in the startup. And I think there would be a lot more if we didn't have people, um, give us their input.
1: Yeah. So, so it, it sounds like you have a lot of false positives. If you were to just ask your friends and family, they're all going to be encouraging and I give you kind of the, the raw truth. And then once you step outside, you know, where you can probably hear more of, there's no reason for them to like not try to hurt your feelings by telling you the truth. But, but do you ever bump up against people that, that just like see it as, oh, you're just trying to get information It almost seems like a business coming in and trying to get, you know, if someone calls you and asks you if you want to take a survey, you're, you're probably likely to say to say no or just – it's kind of bothersome. Did you ever – how do you make sure that that's not the case when you are looking to test your market outside of your media network, outside of your friends and family, but not become, like, maybe overbearing or intrusive when you're going around and trying to get feedback?
0: It's a really good question because I think I – if I didn't believe in my product, I would have bumped up against that and felt mm-hmm. like I was a nuisance or – the word you use the word get. And I've always come from, Hey, there are just billions of trillions of tons of trash in the ocean. This is, this is an issue for everyone. I come from a strong background in sustainability. So for me, it's really, I know what is happening. I, uh, I feel really privileged to be able to be helping. And it sounds silly at times. Uh, you know, I've, I've, colleagues who are on the front lines of climate change and it's incredible what they're doing. And at times, I guess I felt a little imposter syndrome of, Oh, I'm just helping, you know, make, make sanitizer dispensers more sustainable, which is, is felt a little silly at times, but the impact that we've had is millions of pounds of plastic taken from the ocean. We've employed people across different sectors and, um, yeah, it feels nice to also, uh, teach our audience and our customer about what sustainability really is, what carbon offsetting is, et cetera. And, and so, um, I knew that from the beginning and to me, I never worded anything in a, let, you know, give me information. I need to get this. It was always about, Hey, we have this idea and it could work. And there's, a lot of impact, positive impact that this could make right now. Um, before we go further, your input would be really valued, and um, you know we're all ears. A lot of people would would take the opportunity to call us up and, and tell me about their thoughts on it, um, where they'd want to buy it, what they think um, would work, and, and that's really valuable. I mean, some really really smart people just stopping their day and saying, "Well, actually, what have you thought about this, that, etc." And um, I think it comes down to context. I think it always comes down to context, but I particularly for anyone at that stage, make sure that you're wording things in a way that that's, um, thinking about the audience and what's in it for them, because my audience truly feels like they're part of Santa kind. Cause they are, they really are. We value their feedback and we have, and we thank them. Um, we keep them in, engaged and enrolled. And some people of course are, they were done then. Um, some people never purchased our product. I'm sure. Um, but some people have been with us since day one and, um, and they know that they're valued and I think that's why they're still with us. So long story short, it's like, you know, what, what's in it for them. And there definitely is something in it for them.
1: Yeah. I I think, um, what you're saying too, is that you can either try to find what's in it for them, or if you have a product, you have a, a mission that is kind of bigger than you that actually does encompass their best interests. Right then, it's it becomes way easier to you almost don't you almost don't have to build that context as much if you already have a mission from the start that is already inclusive of their interests, right? Rather than trying to, you can always always try to find a way that again you know that that uh um that that helps them understand what's in it for them. But if you start off with a mission that is already uh, in it for them. I think that that definitely makes it easier as well. And you had mentioned that um, a big part of it too is asking the the right questions and not leading. I think this is a, an important one too. Because once you transition from talking to your friends and family, and then you start talking to other people, I think um, you can still also have some false positives if you you know lead them with with certain questions as well. Do you do you have any kind of lessons learned from this? Like what are some of the the most important questions that you got the answers to, especially early on, and were there certain ways to ask it to get the, the most maybe unbiased answers?
0: Yeah, I utilized a lot of um, online resources. I think that there's uh, just so much information out there of what are good questions, what are bad questions. Um, I um, have spent a lot of time doing stakeholder interviews, so I've made a, 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 my fair share of mistakes leading the witness so to speak. Um, but I think that a lot of people could be convinced that it's a good product. And so making sure that you're not marketing during your questionnaire, you're really not marketing and you're asking more of what's the problem. And is this a problem that's worth solving? Because for some people exchanging their sanitizer, you know, their plastic sanitizer, it's not a problem worth solving for them. They just simply don't care. Their, their problem is making, you know, it's convenient. So they may be purchasing their sanitizer at a checkout line from who knows where. Um, and that's okay. It's really important to know that. And I think not shying away from the questions that could be a little confronting, um, and leaning into the problem more so than the solution because solutions, um, they may sound great, but oftentimes and it's a, you know, Steve Jobs quote of people don't, your, your customer doesn't know what they want. Mm. He provided people with an iPhone. We didn't know we wanted an iPhone. We probably knew we wanted a few of the aspects, um, but we didn't know we wanted an iPhone and look at it now. We can't live without it. Um, so I, I think looking at the problem and solving from there, uh, that's where you can get a lot more really really helpful information.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. That is, that is the um, the approach that you have when you are surveying uh, your your market is not about hey will you buy my product will you buy this solution but truly understand what their problem is and kind of working almost backwards to 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 a solution then hopefully the solution that you work your backwards to is the the product that you had you had a monitor or something similar to it uh, do you do you have any examples of, of how you dig into these problems like the example that maybe you know the mission that you started with off with or or you and Miles started off with was this idea of sustainability uh, but then you had you had you would have customers that that, you know, that's a nice, nice to have, but it's not a big enough a problem for them. The bigger problem for them is convenience or, um, you know, maybe not having a bunch of empty bottles around their home or something like that. How did you, how do you uncover those other use cases?
0: There's a lot of data out there that supports that people will pay more for sustainable products up to 25%. I think it's probably even more. Um, and each industry we've seen has sort of been taken to task with sustainability, and some are using it as an opportunity, and some are just complying with new regulations. Um, so I think when we looked at what some of these use cases were and and value propositions, sustainability was going to be a no brainer for us. It came down to the other aspects: how high end did we want to make it? How much did we really want to lean into sort of the eco warrior? I think it's really important to make a list of who your audience is so you can understand your product market fit. If we're leaning into sustainability and that's a no-brainer for us, well, sustainability, I mean, there's a large spectrum of people that care about sustainability and to different degrees. I think Swell Water Bottle is a great example of someone that we've really appreciated. Um, they're sustainable. I mean, they're, you're not using a plastic bottle when you're refilling a Swell Water Bottle, but you're also not focused on sustainability, you actually care about the look of your swell water bottle almost as much as you care about the sustainability, if not more. And they really lean into that. They don't focus on sustainability all the time. We looked to them and thought, huh, well, we can make new colors and we can lean into that aspect of their, their model, but we can lead with sustainability. And so what other brand would be a great example of that? And you can kind of list where people are on that spectrum and then compare it to the sanitizer industry or whatever industry you're looking into and place yourself in a unique position and have that unique selling point um, for your brand. And and that's where you can differentiate yourself and look to see if there's actually reason for you to carry on or not. Maybe, maybe there isn't. Uh, maybe you need to pivot your idea.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned Swell. I think I've had other uh, sustainability brands on the podcast that have mentioned that for them, sustainability almost feels like it's it's a mission that they have internally and that, Maybe when it comes to the, to, to the larger market, it's almost like an add-on where the customers, right now at least, see sustainability as a, a nice to have, a bonus to have. But the core product still needs to to serve like their main problem, which might not sometimes might not be, or a lot of times might not be sustainability focused. Do you see that? Uh, kind of that, that kind of being the, I don't know, the, the, the sentiment in the market right now where the product itself has to have some other, some other kind of core benefit to the, to the customer and then sustainability kind of pushes things over the, the, the edge or like what, what's your, what's your, your kind of take on the, the market right now for that?
0: I completely agree with that. I, I think at the end of the day, if your product doesn't serve a purpose, then Sustainability doesn't really matter. There's only so much that a person is going to um, put up with for a product not working. I think we see that a lot in in sustainable or eco-friendly um, beauty products. Like a woman is, she cares about a product being sustainable or or better for her, or quote unquote clean. But if it doesn't work, she's not going to use it. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's the the general sentiment. Um, I think Stasher bags, um, they're reusable silicone. Um, you know, they replaced our, our Ziploc bags. Mm-hmm. Those are a great example because they work so well, almost too well. Sometimes you can't get them open. Um, but they're wonderful. They're colorful and they lean into being sustainable. But at the end of the day, if they didn't work, women wouldn't switch those out and wouldn't switch them out. Um, mm-hmm. So we were really clear that our product needed to work and needed to add, uh, value. And that's where making our product convenient, we have a clip to our little mini. And so it's one ounce. It, uh, sprays 450 times before it needs to be refilled and our refills come in aluminum, which is infinitely recyclable. So there really isn't any, there's no virgin plastic in our, in our company. Um, our packaging is plastic free. Um, we offset our shipping. So uh, it's it's certainly in our DNA, but people like our product because they can clip it onto the outside of the bag. It looks cute. They can use it, and uh, it's you know it's colorful. Um, especially a big one is with, with parents. So having their child remember to use sanitizer at school. Um, we have mothers flooding our our DMs or um, all sorts of feedback coming in saying. Um, we put this on my son's bag and he just absolutely loves it. Uh, which we didn't, we, we knew there could be a possibility there, but we didn't expect kids to love it so much. And they really did. And, and being able to refill it, um, I think every time someone refills it, they feel good about the decision that they made. It's a, it's a little bit of a pat on the back from the planet. Um, and, mm-hmm. and people love that.
1: Yeah, I like that. So I want to talk a little bit about the, once you've identified that, okay, this is something worth, uh, or once you and the team have identified this is something worth pursuing further. Moving on to the kind of crowdfunding or the Kickstarter phase first. Um, You mentioned putting together a campaign with very little risk if you kind of know what you're doing. I I think that's kind of what you were saying. Can you say more about how you would approach this if someone else has an idea, they want to truly validate it, right? There's no better way to validate something unless someone puts money down for what you're selling them. Um, what, are, what are some of the, the key things to get right to, to have a successful crowdfunding campaign?
0: A compelling video is really important, and that's what Miles is incredible at. Um, his first video with Final Straw um, went completely viral. Uh, he spoke at the UN. Uh, they were on Shark Tank. It really took off. And so I think if you don't have that skill set, making sure that you hire someone or bring someone onto the team that can provide that. And I I also think knowing who your audience is to the best of your ability, for instance, with these surveys or in other ways, you can make sure that it's speaking to them. Um, We knew that people really cared about Making a Difference, about supporting distilleries, keeping the American jobs there, um, about the plastic problem. Um, At the time, everyone was talking about how COVID-related PPE was causing a plastic crisis, everyone's takeout food. um, So we leaned into those and uh, made it a bit more emotional than I think most videos on Kickstarter are or can be. Um, you know, if we were to launch that same product right now, it would probably speak a little bit different. Um, so, I would say your gut instinct on how you want to do it, and being yourself. I mean, people don't take a risk on a company. Uh, just so everyone knows, if you invest in a Kickstarter product, um, you aren't guaranteed that you're going to get a product back. You are literally investing in a company, and the company is saying, "Oh, thank you, we'll send you a product." But if that product never comes to fruition or if it comes to fruition three years later, you know, so be it. Um, You can't get a refund on your investment. Uh, it, It is what it is. and So you're literally investing in an idea and in the team. So being yourself and being a human to people who are willing to take a risk on you, to believe in you. Um, I think you owe it to that audience, and I think it lands a lot better because there are—it's—it's it's hard answering to a lot of people who, who sometimes don't even know that that's the way Kickstarter works, um, and they might say, "Hey, where's my product?" And when you're a real person, it's a different conversation than when you're you're sort of pretending to be a different a different brand, a different entity, too professional, uh, have it figured all out. You don't have it figured out and and they know that. (laughs) So so don't pretend. Uh, And that's, I think it can all be done in that video. Uh, You can lay the foundation for that authenticity.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So authenticity, you mentioned more kind of more the emotions, make make a big difference. How much? Um, and, and, and people can kind of you know Google Kickstarter and and your brand to find the video, but give us an idea of like what, what were some um in that short clip you know the short uh, you don't have that much attention span from from people that are browsing around what are some kind of key things that you have to hit on to make sure that they understand like what they're they're investing in you kind of i'm assuming you spend some time uh, laying out the problem that 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 you're trying to solve but then how much time do you spend on the actual solution that you have in mind
0: oh yeah we we already knew what the product was going to be um we had um CADs of it, or you know, a, a digital version. Um, Miles made um, a version of it that we could use for pictures. Um, so you're showing people what the product is going to be. That's really, really helpful. It's sort of like um, you know, a, an, an ice cream brand. People want to see what the ice cream looks like before they buy it, and when they do, they're they're more you know they're more invested. I think that. Um, that's absolutely critical, um, showing people with it, how it could work. Uh, obviously our, you know, one aspect is that we were using a spray sanitizer, which we believed was better than using a gel, um, which can kind of get all over the place. Um, goopy, et cetera. You can't really spray it on anything. Um, so we showed that a lot and we had to kind of fake what it looked like to spray from our bottle because the. The initial didn't spray yet. Um, so you want to be creative with really showing how this is going to work. And, and we took video from Miles' trip to Haiti, um, showed people picking up plastic. Um, we showed distilleries and what it looked like to um, have people filling bottles with um, distillery sanitizer. So we really painted a picture and then I think I think that, that really, like, that's, that's the, those are the key points. We have great music, um, and keep it upbeat and moving quickly. Our attention span, as we all know, is just, um, you know, limited, uh, so you really have to capture people initially and, and grab them in immediately.
1: Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now let's get back to the interview. Awesome. Okay, so three, I think you mentioned earlier $350,000 raised raise from the crowdfunding campaigns. Um, you mentioned, too, along this way about get, collecting or get, collecting emails and making sure that you're able to capture the people that are interested. What, what's, what does that mean exactly? What, tactically, how do you make sure that uh, people that are interested in the product, if they're already uh, backers, great. But are there other ways to capture anyone kind of outside that circle that aren't backers but still might be interested in the product?
0: Yep, you can run ads, and running ads, um, it's basically saying, you know, we're going to launch. Um, come join us, and simply a URL that uh, allows people to enter their email address to be the first to know when launch happens. Um, so you're building um, excitement. You're counting down the days, uh, the hours, the minutes until launch, and. Then you really want to make sure that you're working with um, different. There's different organizations that we partnered with um, that work with just people who are our Kickstarter backers. So they have their whole email list, and will send out emails saying, "Hey, this product new on the market. It's going to come out tomorrow." Um, they'll send those emails to the people interested. So the Kickstarter community is really small. Um, a lot of backers. I cannot remember the stat off the top of my head, but most of the people uh, on the platform have invested in multiple companies. Uh, So you really want to lean into that and, um, and find the different organizations and partnerships that have, um, have that audience in in their um, ecosystem. And um, we had thousands and thousands of emails to launch with, And um, even pushed back our campaign a few weeks because at the time, um, you know, we had the civil unrest with Black Lives Matter. And we really wanted to keep the focus on that instead of adding any noise for something, you know, comparatively as silly as a sustainable sanitizer. So we pushed back our campaign, continued to um, hold back on ads. We actually couldn't talk about sanitizer on Facebook. Facebook was... Um, not allowing it at the time. So anytime we talk about hand cleaner, um, antibacterial, we would get taken down even if we didn't say the word sanitizer. So there was a lot of hurdles at the beginning, but I think it's worth making sure you hold back and really get those email addresses, get it in and I'm using the word get, which I really shouldn't If anyone is interested in launching a Kickstarter, the crucial aspect or mathematical equation to having a successful Kickstarter um, in the hundreds of thousands is creating that early excitement. And so in the first day, we reached over $80,000 in pre-orders or investment. And that then just starts to have the snowball effect. And you really need the snowball effect so that it, it carries on with its own momentum. Otherwise, it can be extremely expensive. Um, so that is, is critical. You, could, you should wait and hold back and continue to uh, earn those email addresses um, rather than trying to just meet an arbitrary deadline where you may not have enough email mm-hmm. to, to create that snowball effect.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point about how I think um, the maybe incorrect approach to crowdfunding is that you're thinking of it as like a saving grace to like launch a company, but really it's like a tool to take to the next level. And you have to put in the work early on to to the right the right ingredients, right input into having a successful campaign is that early traction, as you had mentioned, where almost everyone that I've had on the show that has had successful uh, companies that have been started off the backs of a crowdfunding campaign have had you know basically almost the entire campaign funded within the first 24 hours. Um, so you had mentioned organizations you worked with do you remember anything anything you can mention off the top of your head that are Kickstarter based um, agencies or organizations that you worked with to help assist with that launch?
0: Um, Backer camp they were a wonderful one. Um, I think they're the biggest one. so I would start there. Um, it's definitely they take their cut it's definitely worth the cut um, and they're wonderful. Um, they will always be helpful and responsive, um, from our
1: experience. Awesome. So once you once the campaign launched um, and, and ran successfully, over three hundred fifty thousand dollars raised. What was the next step? We
0: closed our fundraiser with Kickstarter and moved everything to Indiegogo um, in early August, and we started working immediately on our um, our CAD on. Um, the product and and just getting it into production at the time there was a massive aluminum shortage in the world um, and all these giant corporations you know a cat food company, Budweiser whomever they were purchasing all the aluminum so we had a really hard time finding the right bottle size that we had promised um, we also, needed to buy our sanitizer what was interesting was that the sanitizer we purchased from a distillery thinking we were doing this was this great service to distilleries it didn't smell as good as uh, a sanitizer normally would um, because you know it's from a distillery so um, that was an interesting setback Um, and then of course shipping delays um, onboarding to a shipping facility that took extra time there was a huge backup so we didn't end up launching until we, – we were really optimistic, and looking back, we should have just totally said it would be several more months. Um, but we ended up launching December – the first week of December 2020.
1: Got it. Okay. So once the, the launch had happened, was there still a kind of a pent-up demand for the product, or did you almost have to like build up the – the the um the demand, the desire for the product again. What was the marketing once you kind of moved off of crowdfunding?
0: Well what was interesting was that we didn't have a ton of product in hand um early. You know, what would normally happen is if you place a big purchase order, you're going to get samples, you're going to get what you need to maybe send out to influencers, to um take all your product photos. We didn't have the luxury of that. Uh just Due to this massive delay in shipping across the world. So when everyone was getting their product, we were getting our product too. Um, so we we leaned into PR instead of having incredible marketing. It was almost, it was the ninth hour of your holiday shopping. And I think back then we almost already forget that um, people, you know, Black Friday was huge but then people are still shopping and they're used to shopping in person still as of 2020. And so when that was taken away from us and we all had to shop online for the most part, um, we weren't doing it soon enough. There were delays all across. We had the USPS um, defunding. It was just, it was a a mess. Um, So we leaned into PR and we had a few massive hits that were really incredible for, for our sales and, building our customer base. Um, we, we were in numerous Forbes, GQ, Men's Gear, uh, Green Matter. Um, and since then, we've continued to have wonderful PR, which has really been wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's been amazing for us.
1: Yeah, so was this all done in-house where you're reaching out and getting these massive hits through PR? Or how, did, how were you able to, what was the process to getting um, the, the publications to write about you and the company?
0: We hired Be Influential PR and they work with predominantly impact companies um, and a lot of Kickstarters. So they had, we knew them from Final Straw. Miles knew uh, the founder directly and we can't say enough good things about them. They know their niche. They have wonderful relationships. um, They understand the startup life and how crazy it is and they're just wonderful people. So um, we knew we were in good hands, and given we couldn't create a, a normal launch and it was so last minute, um, they came through tenfold.
1: That's awesome, and I want to I talk a little bit about how you kind of uh, explain your product to the market. We talked about this uh, briefly before we went on air about this idea of like building trust, the brand trust around sustainability, and that you're kind of in it for the you know the quote unquote right reasons versus I um, think you know the common term of greenwashing, where you're just kind of saying it and marketing it but not actually living it. How do you make sure that that comes across and that your 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 customers actually believe? You know, especially if you're a brand new company that just has no kind of, I guess, you know, there is some track record behind the scenes, but to a customer, they might not recognize a brand. They might not understand that, that you guys stand by what you're saying. How do you make sure you can build that, that brand trust?
0: Sure. I think this is really important and it's not a phenomenon that happens overnight. There's no real, like one ad that's really going to do it or one partnership or, you know, it, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, we built an Instagram and email marketing, um, funnel of just really explaining to people what is carbon offsetting? Why does that matter with my shipment? Um, we put inserts into everyone's package that explains our impact. So they might have noticed the impact when they came to our website and purchased a product, but we're reiterating it throughout the process for them. So they know how much plastic we've um, upcycled they know uh, the amount of donations we've made to nonprofits they understand that there's no plastic in their shipping we ask them to recycle um, and our emails mirror that as well uh, so I think it's really where do you add value for a customer because no one really knows what carbon offsetting is um, I'd like you to know so that you you know choose my brand over the next that doesn't have carbon offset shipping. However, I really would rather you understand what carbon offset offsetting is in the first place and why it matters, how it can help. Um, You know, It isn't a a perfect um, band-aid for for climate change, but it certainly does help. And so we've taken the approach of educating our customer, adding value to them, giving them tips on uh, how they can reduce their impact You know, someone who's a a total muse of mine is Blue Land. They have an absolutely incredible Instagram account um, that has little funny tips and then some serious tips. And one thing that's important with explaining sustainability is making sure it doesn't feel like the end of the world, like we're all just you know doomed. And so, and a lot of the news can feel that way, uh, can it? So you want to make sure that it's funny, it's entertaining, it's informative. It's optimistic, and it it motivates someone to take the action rather than to feel fear. And I was really, really quick to say we are not doing any fear mongering, not the slightest bit. And I think to to a fault, I almost could have leaned into, "Hey, let's you know, Omicron right now is is a real issue. Um, Let's keep each other safe." I almost shied away from that uh, communications as well, because I, I don't want people to feel scared. There's um, no way to live in um, so yeah i'm i'm a bit i'm rambling a
1: bit but um, yeah that's yeah well, i th- i think that this kind of leads into the the next uh, thought which is around either existing companies existing brands today or a listener out there that's thinking about starting a company or a brand and they want to be sustainable they want it to be kind of one of their first uh, you know principles when they're starting their their business, but how to do it in a way that is profitable. Like you had mentioned that you could probably squeeze more profits out by using fear tactics and scaring people into, you know, buying, um, your, your products. Um, uh, but you decide not to do that. So how do you kind of balance these two worlds, um, between wanting to build a sustainable business and then, but it also needs to be, the business itself needs to be sustainable too. It needs to be able to survive and thrive and grow
0: you're always going to have to look at the numbers first and foremost and see what makes sense. Um, there are a few certifications out there that you can get climate neutral is one. Um, there's 1% for the planet. We're a member of that. 1% of our, um, profits go towards, uh, environmental initiatives, um, is founded by, uh, Patagonia. Um, so there's, there's different aspects and each has their, um, their audience, their industry, and what makes sense for the business. So I would really make sure that you're creating the right fit for your product. Not every sustainable initiative is going to make sense for you. Um, Donating sanitizer has been something that we've loved to do. We don't talk about it a lot or even enough, but it makes sense because we have a product that would help a lot of people and keep them safe. Um, Donations sometimes don't work for other, other companies. If you're a, a, predominantly focused tech company, or maybe you're a jewelry brand, um, maybe donations don't make sense or they could, if you find, you know, if you're a jewelry company and you find women who are, uh, I mean, an idea that comes to me is, you know, formerly incarcerated women who want to apply for jobs, um, give them wonderful jewelry that makes them feel amazing. You know, that it's, it's really like what lights you up because if something doesn't light you up, you're going to get really bored of it. Just like your business, you know, if your business, your your business overall doesn't light you up, um, it's going to be a slog. That's for sure. So it's something where I, you know, I love going to a a nonprofit um, project open hand in San Francisco. We donated um, I think about 120 gallons of sanitizer and it was so fun to be able to um, drive up and drop off a, ton of boxes for them they're so grateful i have loved volunteering for them and it meant a lot to me um so so that i would say for anyone who wants to have an impact um first amazing you're great and you you should keep going and you have a huge heart and we need people like you so keep going and second really take a moment to think about what's going to light you up and something that you can carry on and grow and be almost just as excited to grow um, as the company itself, um, whether it's totally within the, the value proposition of your product, or it's just you being responsible for the fact that you know we're all extracting resources from this planet to make our products. So how are we being responsible for that? Um, which I I think we all should be, and and I think we all want to be.
1: Yeah, so I I think one of the very interesting things about your story, too, is that there's opportunity that came and matched with you and your co-founder's background. You guys are striking while the iron is hot. How much attention are you paying to what – the business will look like once, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon, but when, when the global pandemic is no longer the top news story, like how much of it, of your focus, or is it a concern at all about how you want to either position a company or, or what you want to, how you want to adapt as the world kind of changes a bit moving forward? It's a great
0: question. Uh, when we first started, it was, I mean, at that time, when we first started, everyone thought that we were going to be in Lockdown for like six weeks, and this thing was going to be over, mm-hmm. and we'd all be fine, right? So as we kept going, there's bigger and bigger delays, shortages. We realized this was going to go on for a while, but again, people thought, okay, we're just going to go through the 2020 winter, spring, summer's going to come around, and it's going to be gone. Um, here we are; it's it's December in 2021, and uh, we're all sick, <laughs> me included, and. Um, I what we do know is people were using sanitizer before. It's a very seasonal product. So as we saw in the summer, when things opened up, um, when people were moving around a bit more and felt safer to move around, they didn't. And you know, when school was out, they didn't use sanitizer as much. And we saw that reflected in our sales. It wasn't surprising. And then. As soon as fall started to hit, as soon as the the school um, season was back in session, uh, we're now seeing Omicron sales are really up. And it's a funny thing because, of course, we want the pandemic to be ending. Um, For us, it's great to see the sales and be able to think about how we can better serve um, both our sustainability mission with having people buy a sustainable product rather than virgin plastic uh, but we also just get 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 a lot of um, a lot of joy out of keeping people safe. So for us, when we think about after the pandemic is over, um, we know people are going to be using sanitizer more than they were before the pandemic. Probably not as much as that initial um, you know uh, summer of 2020. We're not worried about it. Um, we think that this is going to be part of our everyday. Uh, life going forward, masks. You know, I think that's a, a, maybe a different story. Mm-hmm. But sanitizer, I think, has a, is a bit more bulletproof. I just think that because we've attached ourselves to sustainability as well, uh, we can we can expand our product line in ways that makes sense with our core values, rather than really trying to reach for other products. I mean, from sanitizer, you can kind of go. You see a lot of beauty beauty lines having now a sanitizer or Bath & you know, Body Works, that sort of type of stuff, mm-hmm. they've got sanitizer. Everyone sort of has sanitizer as a complementary product to all their other staples, whereas sanitizer is our staple. So where we could go with it, I don't want to create a skincare line or beauty products. That's just not for me. But creating products that are more sustainable and solve our everyday issues, uh, that's something I can totally
1: hop on mm-hmm. board with. That makes sense. That, that's awesome, exciting future for you guys. So, S-A-N-I-K-I-N-D dot com is the website. And I'll leave you with this last question: What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you've learned over the first one and a half, two years of of running this business that you're making sure to apply moving forward?
0: Oh my goodness, um, that's a it's a big question because there is just so many things that I've learned, and I think if I were to encapsulate, um, you as a founder, you make so many mistakes. Hindsight is definitely higher than 2020. I mean, if we could go back, my lord. But I have a resilience that I um really appreciate. It's grown, that muscle of resilience has grown. And I think I have a lot more compassion for making mistakes. It's almost like you get a boot camp in failing and getting back up really quickly. Um, and, and where you find your resilience is a lot in people's feedback and reaching out to your community and focusing on the good and focusing on what's possible. Um, I've always been an eternal optimist and, uh, starting your own company <laughs> is, is a boot camp in, in just testing that over and over and over. So, uh, you know, to anyone who's out there and, and has the, the, um, wants to, pursue their own business. I don't think you're going to have a better personal or professional, um, opportunity to grow. It's, it's amazing. So I say, I say, do it. You've got nothing to lose. I mean, you do, right. But, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but pretend like you don't and just go for it.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your experience and stories, Martika.
0: Thank you so much, Felix. Um, This is amazing. I think, you know, to be able to to come on this podcast is is such an honor. Really appreciate
1: it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.